This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's make, uh, well, we've already made sure we're in fellowship with the Lord's table, so let's just open in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your Word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and that you have revealed absolutes to us, that in your Word you have told us things as they are and not necessarily as we experience them. And it is only from the framework, the frame of reference of your Word, that we are able to rightly understand and interpret our experiences, the events of our lives, to be able to see what they are as they relate to your eternal plan. Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, that God the Holy Spirit would make them clear to us, and that we would respond with positive volition to make them a part of our spiritual life and to apply them in our thinking. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to First John or Second John, verse five. Second John, verse five. Remember, Second John and Third John are and Jude as well are books that have only one chapter. Second John, we're in verse five. Now, one of the things that is I pointed out several times over the years is that what makes the difference between liberals and conservatives, whether you're talking about political liberalism or whether you are talking about cons- uh, uh, religious or Christian liberalism, is how you view man. An excellent book on the subject is one called Conflict of Visions by Thomas Sowell, and he addresses the whole arena and in the political dimension. He starts off one of the most profound introductions I've ever read. has uh, truly impacted my thinking. He says, It's no mere coincidence that people line, the same groups of people always seem to be together, no matter what the political question might be, whether you're talking about uh, taxes, school vouchers, whether you're talking about the death penalty, no matter what the subject might be, the same people tend to group together on the same side. So whether the question has to do with with uh, capital punishment, whether the question has to do with, with uh, increase in support of the military, the same people tend to always be on the same sides of these questions. Now, why is that, he asks? Is that just mere mere coincidence? Or is there some reason? And the reason he isolates is that there is a difference in the way they look at reality. And there are there's one group of people in the world who look at reality and the nature of man as being basically good. And everything flows from that. 
There's another group that looks at man as being inherently bad or evil, and everything flows from that if they are consistent. And that's, that is a core issue. That's where you have to go. I mentioned this in the first hour. If you are going to try to find what the correlation is between political liberalism and religious liberalism, you have to ultimately ground it in how they view or their vision of the nature of man. Is man basically good or is man basically evil? Now, there's a, uh, I've said that many times, and uh, Dan Ingram's brother emailed me a, a, an editorial by Dennis Prager that was published in the Jewish World Review on December 31st, 2002. And he makes the following observations. I thought I would read this. This is so perceptive, and he makes a couple of observations that, that had not occurred to me yet. But it's uh, the kind of thing that every one of us should be aware of. He writes, No issue has a greater influence on determining your social and political views, and we would add also your views of the Bible, then whether you view human nature as basically good or not. In 20 years as a radio talk show host, I have dialogued with thousands of people of both sexes and from virtually every religious, ethnic, and national background. Very early on, I realized that perhaps the major reason for political and other disagreements I had with callers was that they believed people are basically good, and I did not. I believe that we are born with tendencies toward both good and evil. Yes, babies are born innocent but not good. See, we would say they're born innocent, but they're sinners. They have a sin nature. They're fallen. They're, they're corrupt. They are not what God originally intended man to be because of the fall of Adam. This is why is this issue so important and gives four applications. I want you to think about this because we're going to come back and tie this together a little bit later uh, in the message if we get there. First, If you believe people are born good, you will attribute evil to forces outside the individual. If you think people are basically good, then when evil happens, you're not going to think it's their fault from their bad decisions, but it's some force that's acting upon them, whether that is uh, secular culture or poverty or economics or whatever that may be. He writes, that is why, for example, our secular humanistic culture so often attributes evil to poverty. Washington Senator Patty Murray, former President Jimmy Carter, and millions of other Westerners believe that the cause of Islamic terror is poverty. Karl Marx thought that the cause of, of poverty, the cause of social problems in the world was economics. See, it's because man is basically good, so he can't be the problem. It's got to be something else. He writes, something in these people cannot accept the fact that many people have evil values and choose evil for reasons having nothing to do with their economic situations. The representatives of that huge group of naive Westerners identified by the once proud title liberal do not understand that no amount of money will dissuade those who believe that God wants them to rule the world and murder all those they deem infidels. Second, he says, second application, if you believe people are born good, you will not stress character development when you raise children. This is something we'll get to later on. If you believe people are born good, you will not stress character development when you raise children. If you think your child is basically good, then the way you approach discipline and child training is not only not going to be biblical, but you are going to produce a a, a person who will have a hard time facing reality as they grow up because they've been trained in a system that is 
divorced from reality. Uh, if you believe people are born good, you will have schools teach young people how to use condoms. How, he, this is what he writes. You will have schools teach young people how to use condoms, how to avoid first and secondhand tobacco smoke, how to recycle, and how to prevent rainforests from disappearing. You will teach them how to struggle against the evils of society. Remember, it's not evils of your own, your own person. It's all societal, sexism, racism, classism, and homophobia. But you will not teach them that the primary struggle they have to wage uh, to make a better world is against their own nature. That is a perceptive insight. The biggest fight that every individual has is not against some social evil, but against the evil that resides in your own heart. The Bible says the heart is deceptive and wicked above all things. Who can know it? Third, he says, if you believe that people are basically good, God and religion are morally unnecessary. Uh, This was a new thought for me. This was very perceptive. If you believe that people are basically good, then God and religion are morally unnecessary, even harmful. Why would basically good people need a God or religion to provide moral standards? If you're inherently good, you don't need somebody else telling you what's right or wrong. You intuitively know what's best. You are your own absolute. What, what did we study in our lengthy study of judges is that, that the problem in Israel was everyone did what was right in their own eyes. See, if you think people are basically good, then you inherently, intuitively know uh, what's right or what's wrong. He goes on to say, therefore, if you believe that you are basically good, and therefore you basically know what's right or wrong, therefore those who disagree with you must by definition be bad. See, if you think you're basically good, then people who disagree with you are basically bad or evil, not merely wrong. You also believe that the more power that you and those you agree with have, the better the society will be. Oh, this, the implications of this are profound. This is why such people so committed to powerful government, this is why such people are so committed to powerful government and powerful judges. See, this is one of the things that I want to do if we can do this next year, is have a 4th of July conference. I keep mentioning this, but we'll see if it happens. Um, Because the ultimate issue, the ultimate idea present in colonial America, whether you were Presbyterian, whether you were Congregational, whether you were Baptist, and uh, up to, to, because you didn't have Methodists were just a minor influence, they all held to a primarily Calvinistic view of man, which is man is totally depraved, and and, and, and a view of God that God is sovereign. And therefore, since God is sovereign, no human institution can claim sovereignty, so all human institutions have to be limited in power. Because all human institutions are run by fallen creatures, and fallen creatures must be limited. Otherwise, if they have absolute power, then absolute power corrupts absolutely. So the idea that that he has is that, um, I think I skipped something here when reading this, the, the idea is that, that um, uh, there has to be limited government and limited uh, bureaucratic authority if you believe people are basically uh, uh, basically bad. But if you believe people are basically good, then you can have unlimited government. You can have unlimited bureaucracy because, after all, government bureaucracy is basically good, made up with basically good people, and uh, they'll know what to do. Now, I think I skipped one. The first application he had 
was that if you believe people are born good, you will attribute evil forces to something outside the individual. Second, if you believe people are born good, you will not stress character development when you raise children. Third, if you believe people are basically good, God and religion are morally necessary. I think I conflated three and four. You will believe that God and religion are basically uh, are, are morally unnecessary, even harmful. Why would basically good people need a God or religion to provide moral standards? Therefore, he says, the crowd that believes in innate human goodness tends to be either secular or to reduce God and religion to social workers, providers of compassion, rather than those who teach moral standards and moral judgments. Now, his fourth reason, which I jumped to inadvertently, if you believe people are basically good, you, of course, believe that you are good, and therefore those who disagree with you must be bad and not merely wrong. Therefore, instead of being suspicious of big government, big labor, and big corporations, and even big institutions, you want to promote those things. So this is why I thought in one editorial he exemplified uh, some core values between conservatism and liberalism, that liberal theology and liberal uh, politics flow together. They are consistent because they are both based on a certain vision of the world and vision of man that man is basically good. Whereas conservative politics and conservative theology uh, also go hand in hand because they tend to view man as being basically, basically evil. Now that is not, by saying that, I am not necessarily, I want to put this caveat in here, I'm not necessarily saying that advocating one political party over another, because I think that in many ways there are members of both parties who are are not representing what I would consider to be a more the most biblical way of approaching problems. But we we do see from this article why there are certain uh, parallels and why there is a tendency for evangelical Christians to always be conservative in their politics and why evangelical Christians should always be conservative in their politics and their economics and their views of things in life is because of their ultimate view of man. Now that really boils down to the core issue that I want to address eventually in this and uh, this study in first John verse five is that The reason we know man, the reason we as believers who understand the Bible to be the revelation of God, the reason we believe God that man is basically evil is because the Bible says so. Now, there may be people who are conservatives. There may be people who are conservative theologically or conservative politically who would argue that from an experiential sociological basis. We would not. We say that man is evil because God says that man is evil. Man was originally created in the image and likeness of God, and he had perfect righteousness, and he was inherently good. But when Adam sinned, he died spiritually, and he acquired a sin nature which affected every aspect of his being so that man is basically evil and left on his own. He will deteriorate into that which is corrupt and that which is evil, and that which is lazy, and that which is irresponsible, because that is the tendency, that is the proclivity of the sin nature. So the point I am making here is that we have to, as Bible-believing Christians, recognize that things are the way they are because God says so, 
not because of our experience, not because of a rational system, but because God has so defined things. And when we come to our basic doctrine that is covered in verses 5 and 6, and that is love, we have to realize that we can't define love on the basis of some arbitrary standard, some culturally derived definition of love. Love must be understood if we're going to have any understanding of love whatsoever. Love must be understood from this biblical starting point. And we must understand love as it is defined by God and not as it is defined by either a human convention or by our own experience. Now let's look at verse 5 and begin to take this apart. John says, And now I ask you, let me turn the overhead on here. Now I ask you, lady, not as writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. We began this last time. John writes, now I ask, it's an aorist active indicative, it's what's called an epistolary aorist, which is used in, in letters where the writer is speaking from the viewpoint of the reader, which would be past tense, then from his own perspective. So he uses an aorist. He could say, I am writing you, I, I now ask you, uh, in the present tense, it's not, you wouldn't see this in the English, but it's true in the, in the Greek. He uses this to refer to his own time of writing because by the time they read it, his time of writing will be in the past. He says, I ask you, lady, not as writing. See, writing refers to the act of inspiration. And we studied this last time, covered the doctrine of inspiration and the infallibility of Scripture, that Scripture is God-breathed. Second Timothy 3:16 and 17 states, all Scripture is God-breathed. Not inspired, as it says in most English translations. That's a poor word to use. All Scripture is God-breathed. The Greek is theotnoustos, meaning God's breath. It is breathed out by God. God breathes it out. It is inhaled by the writers of Scripture and then exhaled by them in their writing. He did it in such a way that they would produce a result that was free from error. Their own personality, their own writing style, their own individual personality is clearly seen in the different writings of Scripture. Nevertheless, God the Holy Spirit so governs or superintends the process that he guarantees that the result was without error in anything that it stated, not just matters of faith and practice. Now, you'll go to some churches and some organizations, and they'll have a doctrinal statement. And in that doctrinal statement, they will say, we believe that the Bible is authoritative in all areas of faith and practice. Now, that's true. But notice what they didn't say, that it's true in all areas of history, true in all areas of meteorology, true in all areas of biology and geology, true in all areas of ethics. See, they just said faith and practice which is a rather nebulous concept, but the faith of Scripture is not a faith that is divorced from historical events in space-time history. When the Scripture says Jesus was in the grave for three days and rose from the dead in a physical bodily resurrection, that is something that happened. It's not just an idea that's nice. It's just not that he, uh, he gained new life because of his teaching, but that there was an actual historical event that took place that people witnessed him in his new flesh and bone resurrection body, and they touched him and felt him, and it wasn't just some idea. Uh, that that uh, 
that his resurrection, the idea of the resurrection, is grounded in a historical event. If you take away the uh, accuracy of the history, then you destroy the event itself. If it didn't actually happen that way in history, then there is no resurrection. It's just an idea, and as Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, then our faith is useless and it's destroyed. So faith cannot be divorced from the historical space-time aspect of all Scripture. So Scripture is true without error in everything that it addresses. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't problems from our understanding framework, but it was free from error in the original uh, writings. It was free from error in the original writings. So he is writing under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, and he says, I'm not writing to you, to you as a dative of advantage, that I am writing this for your advantage. Uh, I am not writing this uh, as a new commandment. And here we have the Greek word kine, actually kainos, meaning new. Now, in the New Testament, there are two different words for new. There's the word neos, N-E-O-S, which means new in respect to something that is recent or young or newly arrived. Looks like this in the Greek, N-E-O-S, meaning new or recently arrived, young or even immature. The second word is the one we find here, and the one that's associated with the New Testament, that is the word uh, kainos, K-A-I-N-O-S. And this means new and distinctive, something that is new in nature, something that is different from the old, something that is superior to the old, something that is superior in value and attraction. The new commandment, therefore, is a is something that is new that replaces the old, something that is distinctive and something that is superior. And this is the same terminology that Jesus used in the upper room in John 13:34. Now, what is this new commandment? And we, I have 11 points or 12 points related to this new commandment. First point, the phrase then, new commandment, that John is referring to here is a term that he picks up from Jesus' statement in the upper room. He says, I'm not writing this as a new commandment to you, uh, but that which we have had from the beginning, that is, from the beginning of Christianity, that we love one another. See, when Jesus said this is a new commandment, it was a new commandment replacing the old. But John is not restating this as something new, but he is restating that original new commandment that Jesus gave in John 13, uh, 34, and 35. Jesus said, There a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So the statement of new commandment in John, first John, or excuse me, second John 5, is a reference to Jesus' statement to the disciples in the upper room. A new commandment I give you that you love one another. Now we need to take this apart and discover why this is a new commandment and what is distinctive about it. So point number two, the old commandment, the old commandment is that which was instantiated in the old covenant or the Mosaic law in Leviticus 19.18. The old commandment is that which was stated 
in in the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Law. In Leviticus 19.18, we have the statement, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, this command is restated in the New Testament in two key places. But we should remember that these two key places, in Galatians and in James, were in context related to Judaism. This is important. In neither place is Paul restating the command as applicable to today. There's a, and what I'm arguing is there is a difference between the command as stated in the Mosaic Law and Jesus' new commandment, which is a new distinctive commandment. Galatians 5.14, Paul says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Notice this. The whole law can be summarized, he states, in the statement, You shall love the neighbor as yourself. The whole law, all 613 commandments. Jesus said it a little differently. He said the law is summarized in two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That summarizes the Mosaic Law. What's the key word? The key word is love. Love summarizes all 613 commandments. So if you go back to the Old Testament and you want to know what love is, you look at how it is defined in the 613 commandments of the Mosaic Law. Now that's going to lead us to a fascinating understanding of what is included in love besides uh, good things, or what most people think of as good things. James 2.8. James states here in verse 8 of chapter 2, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Notice he just recites that and says that if you're doing that, you're doing well. And then he goes on to make some other application. But Jesus gives a new commandment that goes beyond what is stated in the Old Testament. There are aspects of the new commandment that could never be fulfilled as in the Old Testament. And this is what I'm going to take apart in points 3 through 6. Point number 3. The commandment in the Mosaic Law to love your neighbor as yourself is addressed to believers and unbelievers. That's an important thing to recognize. These are just basic observations in the text. The commandment to love your neighbor as yourself was addressed to the entire corporate body of Israel, which is made up of believers and unbelievers. Therefore, the expectation was that anyone could fulfill that commandment. It was possible for both believers and unbelievers to fulfill the commandment. So point number three, the commandment was addressed to both believers and unbelievers, and therefore believers and unbelievers could fulfill it. Point number four, the, in the Old Covenant commandment, the object of love was your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. The object of love is your neighbor. Any, that would mean anyone, believer or unbeliever. So it's addressed to both believers and unbelievers. The object of love is anyone, believer and unbeliever. So the question then becomes, well, who's your neighbor? And that's point number five. Neighbor was further defined by our Lord in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he defines the neighbor as anyone, any human being, believer or unbeliever, that comes in your periphery, whether you know them or not, whether you have a relationship with them or not, and whether they are attractive to you or not. 
See, the neighbor is defined as anyone who comes into your periphery, whether you know them or not, whether they are attractive to you or not, or whether you have a relationship with them or not. We think of love as finding something attractive in the object. We know them. We, we like them. We find them uh, uh, likable and amenable, and we, we want to do something for them. But Jesus is going to define this commandment as being directed toward just anyone, uh, whether you know them or not. And in Luke chapter 10, we have the parable of the Good Samaritan, where a certain lawyer stood up in verse, in Luke 10:25, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit life? And he, that is Jesus, said, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And uh, notice how a very sophisticated answer from our Lord. He's saying, What does that mean to you? You know, sounds almost like what the kind of garbage you get in in uh, postmodern Sunday school classes today, but Jesus is going to point out that his understanding of the text is wrong. That's his point. He's not uh, validating his misinterpretation. Verse 27, And he, that is the lawyer, said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now what he's pointing out is you can't do this, so Jesus has, so the Lord has to supply life for you. Verse 29, but wishing to justify himself, so we see the arrogance of the man in self-justification, he said, who's my neighbor? Ah, I'm going to catch him now. We're going to, we're going to uh, twist him on this point of being a neighbor. Who is my neighbor? See, in rabbinical writings, there's a tremendous amount of discourse and, and debate of who the neighbor was. So Jesus replies with the parable of the Good Samaritan and says, a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's going down because it's uh, Jerusalem's higher elevation than Jericho. He fell among robbers, so along the way he is he's mugged. They strip him, they beat him, they leave him half dead. So he's beaten up, they take his clothes, they take everything, and he's left there in the bushes by the side of the road. Verse 31, And by chance a certain priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. The priest just avoids him. The priest has no compassion for him, no love for him whatsoever. The priest, who is a teacher of the word, does not apply the word. And then second category says, and likewise, a Levite also, in verse 32, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So the Levite, also someone trained in the scriptures who should know what his responsibility was under the Mosaic law to love his neighbor, passes by. On the other side. But a certain Samaritan, now you have to understand the, context, the historical context. Samaritans were not appreciated by Jews. They were hated by Jews. They, they were despised by Jews. They were unclean. They were a, a half-breed race after the uh, destruction of the northern kingdom in, in uh, 722 B.C., the Jews were, re, were resettled. The Jews in the north were taken captive by the Assyrians, resettled throughout the Assyrian Empire. And then the Assyrians, which was their standard operating procedure, took different ethnic groups from a, that they had conquered and resettled those people back in the north of Israel. So now you have a hybrid race there. They didn't take away all the Jews, but they intermarried. So they were no longer pure ethnic Jews. So the pure Jews down in Judea, looked down their nose at the Samaritans, and the racial prejudice from a Jew toward a Samaritan was much worse than any racial prejudice of white toward black ever experienced in this country. 
So that just kind of give, give you the context. So now Jesus says that this Samaritan comes along. I mean, the scum of the earth, the social outcast, the person that we all uh, are that that the Jews hate. This Samaritan who's not schooled in the law, who is who is not supposed to be honoring God, he comes along. And when he saw the man who had been beaten up, he felt compassion and came to him, bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine on them, put him on his own beast. Uh, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So he gives up his time, he gives up his energy, he takes care of this individual, and then the next day uh, he spends the night there at the inn, pays for the hotel bill, takes out two denarii, gives them to the innkeeper and says, take care of him, the more you spend, when I return I will repay you. So keep the guy here, you know, it doesn't matter how much it costs, I'm going to pay all the bills when I come back and take care of him. And then Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? See, the point is, the Samaritan didn't even know the guy who was there. There's no relationship there whatsoever. That's why we call this kind of love impersonal love. Not because it's sort of cold and and dead and inhuman or something like that. It's that it doesn't necessitate a personal relationship or a personal involvement. It involves people that you don't know and will probably never see again, cash, cashiers at a cash register, uh, people on the highway, whatever. It involves people you don't know. So Jesus defines neighbor as just any other human being, whether believer or unbeliever. Spiritual status is not the issue. Now, point number six. We've made four points, three, four, five, and six are observations on the Old Testament commandment. Let me review them. The commandment is addressed to believers and unbelievers. The object was a neighbor, didn't matter their spiritual status, believer or unbeliever. And point five, neighbor is further defined by our Lord as anyone that comes in your periphery. Point number six, the object of love, or rather the standard for the love is defined in the as clause. That shows the comparison. Love the person like or as you love yourself. The standard, therefore, is your own love for yourself. Now, before we understand what it means to love yourself, let's first understand what this doesn't mean. It does not mean that you first have to love yourself, accept yourself, have high self-esteem before you can love anybody else. That's what you're normally taught by all the um, purveyors of psychobabble on PBS and all the purveyors of psychobabble in the culture because they are operating on their own human viewpoint. But what Scripture is saying is that you automatically love yourself. That's the orientation of the sin nature. You are a lover of self. In fact, for those who say that, well, so-and-so did this, remember, you're not, you're not really evil. We go back to the editorial I read earlier, man's not basically evil, so when he commits a crime, it can't be his fault because he's evil or made evil choices. It must be because for some reason somebody in his society, his parents, his teachers, they didn't give him the right self-image. So he has low self-esteem. So we have to put him in a, in a prison system that is going to give him new self-esteem. And so it changes your whole way of looking at, at the role and function uh, of prisons. And they say, you know, the problem with this person is he hates himself. Now listen, that is what un, that's what undergirds so much of this psychobabble, self-image kind of discussion today, except it's 100% contrary to what the Bible says. See, modern psychology says you can hate yourself. The Bible says in Ephesians 5:28 and 29, 
in an interesting context related to love and marriage. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Four, here's the explanation, and it equates a universal principle. It's a gnomic present tense in the Greek. For no one ever hated his own flesh, or gnomic aorist tense. No one ever hated his own flesh. Period. That's what the Bible says. Oh, well, well, you know, so-and-so's in prison. They killed somebody. It's, they, they had a bad self-image. They hated themselves. Or they committed suicide. They had such a low self-image. They hated themselves. No, they killed themselves because they loved themselves. And they, did, they were disappointed in themselves. But the Bible says everybody loves himself. From the moment you come out of the womb, you're a self-lover. And what you have to do is learn, and that's a point of the, the command in the Old Testament, is to learn to put others in the place of that self-love. You naturally, normally are self-oriented, self-absorbed, and you need to put others in that place and treat them as you would treat, would want to be treated in that same situation. It is not saying you have to first learn to love yourself. That is garbage. That is not a biblical way of looking at it. So the standard orientation of man is to put himself in the primary position. But what the Old Testament was saying, no, treat others as you would want to be treated. Now, the conclusion, point seven, the conclusion of points three through six is that this passage in the Old Testament is addressed to unbelievers and believers alike for application to believers and unbelievers alike and is therefore able to be fulfilled in a relative sense by unbelievers as well as believers. It's addressed to believers and unbelievers. It's applied to believers and unbelievers, and therefore it's able to be fulfilled in some relative sense by unbelievers. However, the new commandment, by virtue of the term kainos, the new commandment is a different, a new, a replacement commandment. Point number eight. First of all, John 13:34, love one another as I have loved you. First of all, it is addressed to believers only. It's a second-person plural imperative addressed to the disciples and by application to all believers. To love one another as I have loved you. So it is addressed to believers only. The Old Testament command was addressed to what? Believers and unbelievers. But the New Commandment is addressed to believers only because only believers are going to be able to fulfill it because it's a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. John 13.35 states that it is by this unique mark that all men will know that you are my disciples. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you, and by this all men will know that you are my disciples. Now, what's a disciple? See, there are some people, we call them lordship salvation people, there are some people who believe that a disciple and a believer are the same thing. But a disciple and a believer are not the same thing. A believer is someone who trusts Christ as Savior. But after you're saved, you may or may not make learning doctrine and growing to spiritual maturity a priority. You may become distracted by the details of life, job, career, family, social status, recreation, whatever it may be, may take a higher priority. You're saved, but you're not concerned about spiritual growth. You're not going to make the knowledge and application of the Word of God the highest priority in your life. That's what a disciple is. Now, you may be saved one year and not come to understand the, the demands of discipleship for another 5, 10, 15 years. And one day you wake up and you go, oh, that's what this is talking about. I have to make my life doctrine. 
I have to make doctrine my life. I have to make the Word of God so much a part of my life that I'm going to be able to think biblically about everything. That's when you start to become a disciple. The word disciple means a learner, a student, someone who has submitted to the authority of the teaching of God's Word on a regular and consistent basis. I want you to note several, I want to note several observations. I have nine observations here. Excuse me, eight observations here related to John 13:35. This is all under point eight. First of all, the idea of this unique mark. By this, all men will know you are my disciples. It's an objective, it's, it's an objective standard with an objective model. By that I mean it's not based on feeling. It's not based on your own perceptions. It's based on an objective model, which is Jesus' demonstration of love at the cross. When he says this in John 13:34, he says, Love one another as I have loved you. We have to connect that with 1 John 3:16. that this is, by this we know the love of God, that he sent his son to die on the cross for us, that he gave his life for us, and so we ought to give our life for others. So there is an objective standard, which is what Christ did on the cross, and it's obvious, it is, it is an objective standard we can evaluate in our own lives. Are we loving people in that way? Second, it's the mark of a disciple is not the symbol of a cross. It's not walking around carrying your Bible, wearing a cross around your neck. It's not any kind of overt symbol. It is a character quality. It is a unique character quality that cannot be emulated by unbelievers. So it's not some external symbol. Third, it's not emotion. It's not sentimentality. It's not some pseudo-compassion or pseudo-mercy. It's not being involved in some sort of charity organization, feeding the poor, feeding the orphans in Africa, uh, marching for, for uh, world peace. Uh, I always like the bumper sticker, visualize world peace. It's not emotion, it's not sentimentality, it's not a feeling. It's an objective standard with an objective model. It's based on character, Point number sub-point 4 under 8. It is based on character. It's based on the character of Christ, Christ, which is objectively discernible and knowable through what happened on the cross. It is not developed on our own. It's developed from walking by the Spirit, Galatians 5, 17, 5, 18, Galatians 5.22 and 5.23. The Holy Spirit produces it. It's the fruit of the Spirit as a result of walking by the Spirit and abiding in Christ. Fifth observation, this mark of love for one another challenges unbelievers. Now, you may not know this. It was interesting when I was down in, when we were down in, uh, on vacation, we had a uh, uh, little social engagement with some friends, and there were just two or three couples together. And two of these couples were unbelievers. They were also Jewish. And I have met them all before and have had opportunity to witness to them before. They're not believers. They don't seem to be positive at all. Wonderful people, uh, great to be with. And I, we have, I know them through a mutual friend. And his comment to me about them has been several times, we're not beating them over the head with the gospel. They even beat over the head with this fundy gospel again and again and again. But we're just their friends, you know, and they see in us something different. And they're always watching us. 
And you know that rings true. That is something that you have to realize is that the, the unbelievers in your family, the unbelievers in your periphery see something different in you if you're applying doctrine. They know there's something different about you. And, and they're watching you. They'll want to know if what you're saying matches what you, what you're doing. And, and that visible, that, that visual testimony we have of our life where we're applying the word and, and where we're demonstrating grace orientation, that love for one another. This is a visible, a nonverbal, visible testimony to other people that there is something distinct, something unique about believers that sets us apart from everybody else. And it's not this pseudo-compassion, pseudo-love, sentimental, ooey-gooey, feel-good kind of garbage that passes for love in, in most of Christianity. It is something that is, is uh, a product of spiritual growth. Sixth observation in John 13:35 is that it, it's Jesus' statement that by this... The world will know that you are my disciples presupposes that they do observe this and they do know this. It is observable. He says they are going to see this. When you reach this level of spiritual maturity where this impersonal love, this, this unique, unconditional love to other believers is manifested in your character, unbelievers are going to see it and they're going to take note of it. It is something that is... Uh, observable, and that they know. Seventh thing I want to observe on this verse is that this is the greatest defense of our faith. You know, by defense of our faith, I don't mean we're on the defensive. First uh, Peter 3.16 says that we are to give an answer, for, always to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. But the greatest, the greatest evidence of the truth of Christianity outside of the historical evidences in Scripture is the reality of the Holy Spirit's work in our life as evidenced by love, our love for one another. And it is always a challenge to the arrogant doctrinal believer because he knows inherently. Now, if you talk to him, he may not say anything, he may not admit it, but he knows inherently that there's something about a mature believer that is not a counterfeit. It's not uh, what, a lot, what passes for religion. It is something that is distinct, and they do pay attention. All that was under verse or under point eight that the commandment in John thirteen thirty four and thirty five is addressed to believers only, and it is the unique mark of the spiritually advancing believer. Point number nine: the object of Jesus' command to love one another is directed to all believers. Now, in the Old Testament, it was love your neighbor, believer or unbeliever. In John 13, it's love one another, love other believers. It is directed to believers, other members of the royal family of God, not just to unbelievers. So the object of the command is different. Point number 10, the standard is different. So it's, a, it's, it's addressed to a different group of people. It's addressed to believers only. The object of love is different than the Old Testament command. It's believers only. And the standard is different. The standard is not as you love yourself, but as I have loved you. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. That removes or should remove all, all manner of subjectivity 
from understanding this, this mandate. It is a unique love that was demonstrated by Jesus Christ when he went to the cross and died there as a substitute for our sins. John, 1 John 3.16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life as a substitute for us. That is how we know love. We don't know love by those butterfly feelings you had when you were 14 years old and went out on your first date or or uh, when you first fell in love with your wife or your husband. That's not how you know love. You know love by first coming to understand what took place on Golgotha when Jesus Christ bore the penalty for your sin. That then revolutionizes all your other concepts of love. Point number 11 then, the mandate to love can only be truly exemplified by the advancing believer. A newborn baby may have glimpses, may have flashes of this kind of love, but in terms of a coherent, cohesive, consistent love, it's not going to happen till you mature. Why? First John 2, 3, and 3 through 5 tells us, By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So you've got to know God to keep his commandments. You've got to know his commandments. You've got to know the word. That takes time to know his word. Verse 4, uh, 1 John 2, 4 states, He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love for God is brought to completion or matured in him. And by this we know that we are in him. So it's this kind of love comes from knowing God, knowing his commandments, and keeping his commandments. That takes time. That takes maturity. That doesn't happen overnight. It comes as a result of dedication, making the knowledge of the Word of God the highest priority in your life and advancing to spiritual maturity. Some key verses to understand this, understand love. Point, this is point number 12. Key verses. Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, that's while we were obnoxious, reprehensible, while we were rejected by His righteousness and His justice, while we're under condemnation, while, we, while our hearts are deceitful and wicked above all things, in that state God loved us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have ever everlasting life. And then 1 John 3.16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now that raises the question, how do we analyze this kind of love? See, we got to go back to our basic premise, and that is that there, there are concepts, important concepts that we talk about that, that, that are part of our culture, such as love, righteousness, truth, honor, virtue, that we think everybody knows the meaning of. But see, unbelievers define those terms on the basis of experience, whereas we have the absolute character of God that's the basis for understanding those things. We can't understand love, true love, by starting with the creature. We have to understand true love by starting with how the Creator defines love. This affects many other things in our in our thinking. Man, in his independent or autonomous human viewpoint, defines the terms on a relative basis derived from experience. 
And things, therefore, things like honor, things like truth, things like virtue are going to change from culture to culture. We saw a film, showed a film here several years ago about the uh, peace child. Some of you remember that uh, when Don Richardson took the gospel to the primitive tribes in uh, Irian Jaya and, uh, or Papua, excuse me, Papua New Guinea. And the Sowies had the highest value. What made you the man among men in that culture was that you could so deceive someone, so con someone to the point that they lost their life as a result of the con job. Now, if that's your highest value of what is good, then how are you ever going to communicate the gospel in that culture? I mean, that's why the tribes were so fragmented because of this dishonesty that was really the core value. And what they discovered there was there was some residue of an absolute there that was used as a way of communicating the gospel because in order to finally make sure you were teaching, telling the truth, the, the chief of one group, the headman of one group, would give his newborn child as a peace child to the other group. And that was a picture of how God gave his child to man in order to uh, bring salvation. So uh, Richardson used that. But the point is that every culture has values, but they differ. So honor in that culture is going to be different from honor in another culture. To talk about honor, to talk about virtue, to talk about righteousness or love, you have to have some real absolute. Otherwise, it, the, the terms just get lost in a sea of relativity. Think about other concepts we face, concepts like authority. Concepts like abuse. You know, what's abusive today was not abusive 20 years ago. What was abusive 20 years ago wasn't abusive 100 years ago. But what does the Bible say? You know, there are some things in the Bible that if you judge the Bible on the basis of modern conventions and culture, then you're going to walk away thinking the Bible is really screwed up. We're going to see one example in just a minute. We have to let the Bible define these abstract values. We don't just uh, load them up with the experience that we've picked up. See, Second John 6 states, This is love that we walk according to his commandments. He sets up a comparison. He says love is related to commandments. It's got an objective evaluation standard. It's not how you feel. It's not leaving the church after the morning message saying, oh, wasn't it good to have been there? Don't you just feel warm and filled and wasn't it nice? And we just met Jesus there this morning and all the other rot that you usually hear from people when they leave churches. You, How do you know you love God? It's not how you feel. It's that you keep his commandments. You're taking in the doctrine and you're applying it consistently. Now, when Jesus defines love, and all this is headed towards trying to adding some dimensions to our understanding of love, Matthew 22:36 and following, a Pharisee came up to Jesus and said, "Teacher, what is a great commandment in the law?" Verse 37, Jesus said to him, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment." Verse 39, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbors yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Jesus summarizes everything in the Old Testament and says it is a picture of love, love for God and love for one another, love for your neighbor. Everything, it all speaks of love. Okay, let's take that and go back into the Old Testament and start to look at some ideas about what love is. And we don't have time to do this 
in detail, so I'm going to skip a couple of things which we'll come back to next time. But I want you to turn in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 21. Deuteronomy chapter 21. See, unfortunately, modern man has reduced love to this sort of one-dimensional, flat, sentimental, emotional thing. And you take that and you apply it to being a parent. You apply it to being a leader. You apply it to being a pastor. You apply it to any other field of leadership in life. You apply it to romance. You're going to be in trouble because it leaves too much out. Deuteronomy chapter 21, God is concerned about the integrity of the nation and the preservation of Israel in terms of social harmony and not fragmenting on the inside from criminality. So he's going to give certain guidelines in terms of civil law, and all of this is part of what it means to love. Now, I want you as parents to think about this because God says this is what a loving parent would do. Remember, this is not necessarily something that, to use an anthropopathism, that God would necessarily take pleasure in, but what God recognizes is part of love. See, all of this is part of love. Look down at verse 18. If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother... And when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them. Then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gateway of his hometown. They shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death. Capital punishment. Now, the reason I picked this is because, see, most of us are sitting there going, Well, boy, isn't that harsh? See, God doesn't think that's hard. See, you've been so polluted by human viewpoint concepts of what real love and mercy is that when you look at something like that, you think, boy, that's not merciful. That's not love. But yet it is because, see, God is focusing on the fact that here's this unproductive member of society that is going to, if that is allowed like an evil root to continue, it's going to infect like a plague everybody else in society and eventually destroy and fragment the society. So God is looking at this as part of a full picture of what love is. Love involves telling people things they shouldn't or they don't want to hear, things that that uh, are harsh or hard. Sometimes as parents, if you really love your children, that means you have to be an extremely harsh disciplinarian because uh, by the grace of God, you've got a strong-willed child. And somebody's got to teach that strong-willed child discipline, and that's your job. And unfortunately, that may take 20 hours a day with eyes in the back of your head to fulfill your job. But you can't just say, okay, I'm going to let the medication do it because that's not doing your job. Part of love means being a strong disciplinarian. I'm not saying, you know, and today we want to say, well, that's abuse. See, how what I, the point I'm making is that we're letting the culture define these abstract concepts for us. And then we go to the Word of God. We don't really understand what the Word of God is saying because we're evaluating these words. We're giving meaning to these words that come from outside the, the culture. See, my favorite line that I've heard from any kid, which shows that some parents here understand the principle, is one of our kids down in prep school, in one of the classes, they were studying the divine institutions, and uh, the uh, 
the uh, teacher said, well, uh, what's another divine institution? And one kid said, it's getting a spanking. Well, see, their parents understand the dimension of parenthood. Now, that's not nice, and it hurts parents as much as it does the kid, sometimes more. Some of you are saying, no, it doesn't. But sometimes we have to do, if you're in a position of leadership, those under you to do the right thing, what's best for them, which means you have to understand a lot of doctrine. Remember, love is defined. If we're going to define it, we're going to say love is doing what's best for the object. But that word best, let me put this up here. Best is a, is a superlative in English. Good, better, best. It's a superlative that relates to a value. Whose value? If I'm going to say to love someone, you have, you're going to be doing what is best for them, you have to ask this question, what, what is, how do you know what's best? How do you know what that value is? See, if you're in arrogance or not grace orientation, then you're going to think that your opinion, your agenda, whatever that is, is what's best for somebody. But from the Word of God, you come up with an external absolute. You do know what is best for people. You know, as a parent, what's best for your children. As an employer, you should know what is best for your employees. If you're a mature believer whose value system has been uh, whose human viewpoint value system has been replaced by divine viewpoint objective standards, then you're only then are you able to really love somebody. If you're immature, you still have human viewpoint self-oriented values. You can't love because what you think is best for somebody is what you think it really is what you want, what's best for you. But real love means doing what is best for the object, and that does not mean that... Uh, Loving someone is always doing what they want or what seems easier for them or allowing them to get away with whatever it is they want to get away with. That's not real love. Real love is doing what is best for them because you understand what the uh, external objectives are. Now, there's a lot of that I've opened up in these last few minutes, and we'll come back next time and, and look at them in a little detail. But I wanted to pull it all together from that opening editorial that to understand these concepts, to understand what love is, we have to start with the Bible. So we'll start next time looking at the Old Testament, looking a little bit in terms of some of these, what, we, what modern society would call harsh or primitive uh, mandates in the Scripture, things like capital punishment. You know, the modern man says capital punishment is horrible. Now, it may be practiced in a wrong way. But the principle of capital punishment is ingrained in the Noahic Covenant and in the Mosaic Law, and therefore is part and parcel of what it means to love. Not just doing what's good, but I'm focusing on some of these harsher sides of love because, see, we always want to have that little Pollyanna. Maybe that's a little dated illustration. We always want to have these little superficial, uh, simpering, uh, feel-good, new-agey kind of concepts of love. But love is much more than that. To understand love, we have to look at all the dimensions of divine love. Then we can understand what love is in our marriages and in our families, with our heads bound and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by what you have revealed to us in your word, that we might have our our thinking renovated by the absolutes of divine viewpoint. 
Father, we pray that if there is anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. The issue is not what you've done, the sins you've committed. The issue is not uh, where you've gone to church or denomination, church affiliation, participation in any sort of ritual. The issue is what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Scripture teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that we are all under the penalty of spiritual death, but that Jesus Christ bore that penalty in his body on the cross that he paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, that that we do not have to do anything other than accept that substitutionary payment on our own. That means that all you have to do is believe that Jesus died as a substitute for your sins. If you believe Jesus died as a substitute for your sins, then you are saved. You don't have to know the time in which that occurred, the date it occurred, but if you believe Christ died as a substitute for your sins, and that's your only hope for salvation, then you are saved. You have eternal life, and that can never be taken from you. It's not dependent on anything you did or didn't do, and it is, uh, so its maintenance, its eternal security is not dependent on anything you do or omit to do. Father, we pray that you would challenge us by the things that we have studied today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.